I'm recording this while I have a stew of goulash up on the stovetop using my butcher box ground beef. It's one of the dishes that my Eastern European grandmother used to make all the time, so there's a bit of comfort that comes along with this particular meal. And I always enjoy when my butcher box shows up because I know in that box is 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork that's raised crepe-free, and always wild-caught seafood. If you're looking to create some recipes from your youth or some comfort food for yourself, you can sign up for ButcherBox today by going to butcherbox.com conspirituality and use code conspirituality at checkout to enjoy your choice of bone and chicken thighs, top sirloins, or salmon in every box for an entire year, plus you'll get $20 off. Again, that's butcherbox.com conspirituality and use code conspirituality. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Why does every conspiracy theory seem to lead back to anti-Semitism? That's a question I asked on Thursday's episode about the anti-sunscreen movement, which, as we learned from our guest, Sarah Aniano, there is some anti-Semitic roots in that movement as well. And I want to explore that topic more today in the broader world of politics. Welcome to a Conspirituality Brief. I'm Derek Barris, and I'm joined today by the banter founder, Ben Cohen. Thanks for joining, Ben. Thanks, Derek. So it turns out that even though we have appreciated each other over social media for a while now and following each other's Substacks, and that's what we'll be talking about because the banter is now on Substack, we also taught together at Equinox, although we didn't come across each other back then, but we, we were chatting for a while before we started recording about that. But you're here to talk about the banter, which you founded as the Daily Banter in 2007. So as someone who has spent my career between the fitness worlds and writing and journalism, it seems like you've had a similar trajectory. So what led you to start the Daily Banter in 2007? What got me started originally was the media coverage of initially the Iraq war on and off. I was at at college in the UK, then did a year abroad um, in 2003 at Oregon State. We were talking about that as well, actually, before the show. You, we seem to have followed each other around the, the United States, Derek, I think. Uh, <laughs> it seems so. But I was in Oregon. I went to Oregon State in 2003, right at the sort of beginning of the Iraq war. I came from a very left-wing university in the UK, the University of Sussex. And then I went to a very, what you would probably call a very right-wing 
University in Oregon, which was in a kind of a, in, in Corvallis. It, I think it's a farming university even. Anyway, it was a strange experience from going from one extreme to the other. And there were kind of pro-war marches on campus and that where I'd come from a place where there were weed lock-ins in the, in the science lab. You know, they were protesting the illegality of weed. So they'd lock themselves in the science lab for three days. I had sort of just watched in horror at, at how the media did not accurately report on any of the facts about, you know, weapons of mass destruction and so on. And then I, I went back to the UK and then moved back to LA after I graduated and kind of founded the Daily Banter kind of in response to what I was seeing in the media and, and this total failure to report accurate, accurately on any of this stuff. That was the kind of beginning of the blogosphere when people were kind of starting their own blogs and trying to monetize it. I mean, I didn't make any money out of it. I made money teaching boxing and I was actually a boxing journalist at the same time so I was like three or four jobs trying to make ends meet but that that was always my kind of passion was to write about politics I'd studied that at university and so that was the that was the beginnings of the daily banter and it morphed into several different configurations like I ran an ad network for a a lot other group of bloggers then brought them onto my platform and then we became bigger entity kind of professionalized and put my own money into it and lost a lot of money and so on and and here i am 15 years later still still here just about well and truly beaten by by algorithms and the tech ceos who've done their best to destroy small publishers but but i'm still here yes i also subsidized my writing career with fitness for a long time so i understand the pain points of that and it's always a challenge uh just right now the writer strike is happening in Hollywood. And part of that has to do with putting up guardrails against AI content creation. So we'll, we'll have another battle to face in the coming years as writers. But you moved to Substack in 2019, which I consider a very good platform. There has been some controversy around it, leaning right wing and the whole idea of citizen journalists, of course, is something. But this is something you've been into for a while. What is the focus of the banter, would you say, overall at this point in your history? I would say for the most part, it's common combating right-wing disinformation and trying to highlight what I see to be a very obvious fact that we're facing a fascist insurgency in the United States and that the Republican Party is not a political party in the traditional sense of the word. Uh, That what we're looking at here is something very, very different. You know, it's something quite scary. I've watched this happening over a long time now, you know, 15 years of going from the neocon pro-war media stuff now to uh, a very dangerous ethno-nationalistic movement. I'm not sure which one is more dangerous. I fear this one more than than I did the last one. I wanted to talk to you specifically about anti-Semitism because it's something that has always been around, I mean, well before we were here. I'm a little bit surprised at the resurgence of it and the ways that it has seeped into every conspiracy theory. I grew up in a very Jewish area in New Jersey, my ex-wife is Jewish, my ex-music partner is Jewish, my ex-DJ partner. Like it's, I've been around the culture for so long. So in the last couple of years, just to see the amount of it that has been put forward as this nefarious agenda under everything that comes up in the news now somehow goes back to that. So why, in your estimation, is it so pervasive and repetitive? The, the pandemic probably has a lot to do with that. I mean, that was sort of the ignition for every conspiracy theory under the sun that came out. I mean, that's why I started listening to to you guys was um, I was sort of horrified by what I saw happening in the New Age movement. I've done psychedelics. I 
drank ayahuasca in the jungle 2015. I have a lot of friends in that space, in the wellness space, people who touched on spirituality. Like I, I found Russell Brand to be interesting. And then the COVID pandemic hit. I, I mean, also you have the, the, the combination of the Trump White House pumping out disinformation nonstop the rise of right-wing media sites like Breitbart, where you had this kind of alternative reality. Combine that with the pandemic and the explosion of conspiracy theorists, you know, QAnon, it was a recipe for disaster. And if anybody knows their history, conspiracy theories at some point usually end back at the Jews. And every Jew will tell you this. It's always bubbling beneath the surface that anti-Semitism is always there in society. It doesn't necessarily flare up. I heard someone refer to it almost as like a dormant virus. In times of extreme stress, it blows up. And, and attacks the host. And that's what we're seeing now. And that's due to the fact that we've got, obviously, the internet, social media that allow these conspiracy theories to take off with no way of stopping them, no way of fact-checking them, at least when they're spreading. Um, it takes massive amounts of effort to combat some of this disinformation. I mean, I sometimes feel like I'm, along with other people who I regard as being responsible figures in the media, you know, like you guys, it's like bailing out the Titanic with a teaspoon. You know, I'm, I'm of Jewish heritage. I find it to be personally kind of scary. I've never experienced this level before, the outright hate. And also, uh, on I've seen it spread across the political spectrum as well. I, yeah, I see it in left-wing circles as well as right-wing circles and the alt-left and the alt-right. Watch this in the UK. In the Labour Party, it's become a serious problem. Jews almost have, it's almost like a genetic memory. You kind of have this knowledge or this understanding that things can go pear-shaped quite quickly. And when they do, you'll be held responsible. Have you experienced any of it directed personally at you? What some people might call microaggressions, right? I'm not really a fan of the word, of, of the term microaggressions, but that's the kind of anti-Semitism I experience in person. Uh, and I've experienced a significant amount of that. And I would say almost exclusively from people on the left. And that's probably because I, I live in a very liberal area and most of my friends are very liberal and left-wing, but that's where I've seen the most of it. When I was younger, it would be from the right at school uh, and from teachers um, in the UK. Uh, that was that was more of a kind of traditional, <laughs> your, your, your bog-standard anti-Semitism, but now it's morphed into something very weird where it kind of gets it, it, within the kind of whole identity politics movement that Jews are are seen as being ultra-privileged in, in the hierarchy of oppression. The comedian David Badu, I think, has written a great book about this called Jews Don't Count. It calls them Schrodinger's Jews. I think he took the phrase from somebody else, Schrodinger's Jews, who, who are white or non-white according to the politics of the observer. To the left, you're white and you're privileged, uh, therefore not worthy of protection. Therefore, you know, you can say what you want about Jews and it's not really racism, it doesn't really count because Jews are Jews are white. Uh, and then obviously on the right, the right don't consider you white. You're at the bottom of the heap, you're the vermin, the rats at the bottom. I think there was a T.S. Eliot poem about that, about the rats at the bottom and then underneath that are the Jews. I feel like getting it from all angles at, at the moment. It's definitely been, I would say, it's personally challenging. Uh, as well, because it's rocked my faith in, in what I thought I was a part of. Can you give some examples from the left specifically? Especially you said that it was in your circles that you're getting it. Is this unconscious or is this very conscious directed at you? I would say it seems like more unconscious in the way of comments. One, one example might be, okay, I'll give you two, two examples. So I rent a space, I teach martial arts and I rent a space and the gym recently got 
closed down because they couldn't afford the rent. And the, the guy who ran the martial arts school, he knows I'm Jewish and he kept saying to me, he goes, oh, they've raised the rent, I can't afford it. But, you know, he's a Jew, the landlord's Jewish, like he raised the rent, you know, his name is this, you know, he kept repeating the name to me. That would be one example. Uh, another one would be uh, another friend of mine talking about, I had a conversation with him about boxing. And I said, uh, you know, there were a lot of Jewish champions back in the early 1900s. There were a lot of Jewish in New York, uh, in the east end of London. And I was like, oh, so you guys did use your fists at one point, not just tanks and guns against the, you know, making a joke about Israel. It was a joke. I don't think he meant it. You know, I don't think he really understood what that meant. The idea that all Jews are responsible for what the state of Israel was doing, which I don't agree with, which I'm a long history of writing out, speaking out about Israel and the treatment of the Palestinians. But there's a lot of that kind of, those kind of statements. Jews' money, I hear it from extended family members, non-Jew, <laughs> I've had it from my own, my own family about Jews being good with money. Stereotypes and things like that, that I, I feel like are deemed permissible within liberal, more liberal circles now. Well, not even liberal, I would say it's strange, right? Because you, I, I think the more towards the center you get, the more, at least for me, like I feel more comfortable in the center because I, the center right and the center left, are, they don't they engage in that kind of what I would call casual anti Semitism. Yeah. But the more you feel towards the extremes on either side, it gets. A, more casual, and B, more, a lot more offensive. <laughs> my, my dad had an example of that as well. Like he had, he was on a painting course and someone said, you know, said, oh, you're Cohen, oh, Cohen, yeah. I don't know what you guys are doing in Israel. As if my, my dad's never, you know, I think my dad went to Israel when he was 19 or something. It's interesting because I've spoken about this before, but I've gotten flack from the further left because I consider myself just a little more center in terms of political spectrum, and especially when it comes to culture war stuff. It's always dangerous. I mean, you talk about, you brought up Israel recently. It is a very difficult conversation to have in all directions. And so you have a really confounding case right now where on the American right, you'll have this surgence of muscular Christianity. You were talking about ethno-nationalism before, but you have to identify that as a big driver of that. And so you have a party who will be pro-Israel certain times and then will be completely brokering in George Soros conspiracy theories on the same day that they might be pro-Israel for another reason. What is it like experiencing from the right anti-Semitism in America as compared to what you saw growing up in the UK? It's a lot more frightening, I would say, in the US uh, when you have, when the, the evangelical movement in the US is that we, that we don't really have anything like that in the UK. It's pretty terrifying that you have this very strange relationship with Israel and Jews. They hate Jews on the one hand, but they love Israel. I think, you know, it's probably related to the end times philosophy that Israel will help precipitate the beginning of end times and in the UK. The UK, I mean, is it's there. It's just it's more subtle and, and not quite as um kooky, I would say, in, in, in the US. I mean I found it bizarre um listening to a lot of the far right stuff about the anti-Semitism, the white nationalist movements in the US. I don't like the anti-Semitism on the left. I feel uncomfortable and slightly betrayed by my own side, as it were, but I don't fear it. I, f I fear what, what's on the right. And particularly, I fear what's on the American right. Besides, we obviously, we have an uptick in hate crimes. We know about this. What else do you fear specifically coming from the right when you hear these remarks? I fear that it's going to become, uh, it will turn violent. I mean, it already has turned violent. I mean, you had the Charlottesville protests when they were talking about the Jews will not replace us, which is, they weren't chanting about Jews actually replacing them. It was about Jews replacing them with other minorities. So the Jews are at the back, in the background of this, right? They're the ones holding the, pulling the strings and 
they're getting the other minorities to uh, to come in and, and dilute the white race. Uh, so we're not just we are not just replacing white people, but we are getting other minorities to come and replace white people as well. So that I I fear that very much, and I think that people don't really know what they're playing with with this type of hatred towards Jews or this this type of anti-Semitism. That is, if it, if it's left unchecked, we, we've seen what this what happens. We have an example. 80 years ago, they were burning Jews in ovens and using them as fertilizer. For a lot of Jews, this is still a very present thing for, for their families. I see where this, is, where this is going. You know, We know what the FBI statistics are on. The biggest threat to America are white nationalist terrorists. We know this. And at the heart of their deepest philosophy is a, is a hatred towards Jews and globalists. Right. Whenever I hear the word globalist, that might I have there's like an alarm bell that that rings, and I'm like, ah, they're all bankers, George Soros, you know, the capitalists, the Jews. We created capitalism as well, right? And and communism, apparently. <laughs> I I don't turn to Twitter to get my political understanding of the various types of of politics and economics that exist. They're often scrambled. <laughs> right, 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 right. But it's that scrambling. It's that confusion that is even scary. It's not. It's, it's not coherent none of this stuff is coherent at all it's kind of crazy but again it like you you follow the path it's somewhere it gets back to jews you said you studied politics how is your understanding of history and i ask that in the sense that there's always this idea that oh well the holocaust nothing like that could happen in america when i hear that i don't think people understand i don't want to move into Godwin's law here, but mm. you know, how long Hitler was chipping away before he got there. You're talking decades. Imagine a Trump does get into office in 2024, which is not beyond the pale, the grievances he's going to bring oh, yeah. if that were to happen. I can't imagine. So when someone says to you, well, it's America, you'll be okay here. What does that make you think of historically and for what is possible in the future here. Yeah, I mean, historically, that's just that just hasn't proven to be true for Jews all around the world. This is a sort of, again, ingrained, almost a, a genetic level that wherever you're at, like it's like having the right to go and live in Israel. Not that I, I don't agree with what Israeli government is doing. I don't even agree with the way that it was founded or whether it should have been founded. Like I have issues with that but i know that it's there and they will accept me if it all goes pear shape and people think this is hyperbole or being hysterical but when this stuff flares up it's you know it's kind of scary before the u.s entered world war ii a lot of americans were actually pro-nazi because anti-semitism again back then was extremely common and, and extremely socially acceptable to openly dislike jews I mean, I saw actually I saw a map recently of uh, racial discrimination. There were housing policies where I am in in Maryland and in D.C., but not that long ago, around like the 40s and 50s, I believe it was. Right. And the two minorities who were not where there was widespread discrimination, housing discrimination were Jews and black people. All Jews know what can happen when things go pear shape, and and there's this idea that because we have money, right, we control the levers of power. That th- there were a lot of wealthy Jews in Germany, uh, you know, um, in Russia uh, during the pogroms. This hasn't stopped the the local populations massacring them um, or making life extremely difficult for them. Uh, I mean, you've got people who are drawing swastikas on high schools in Maryland at the moment. This is more and more commonplace. I feel I'm being in this 
kind of strange place of like, I know, I know my history and I know what can happen, but I've also sort of, I believe in democracy in America and Britain. I think they're by and large actually safe liberal places to live, comparatively speaking. I don't think America is uniquely racist. I don't think America is a uniquely evil country at all. I think it's in many ways a very a great country and a great democracy. Uh, and it does a lot to try to protect minorities compared to our history. But it's rocked my confidence a little bit, I have to say. Well, let's talk a, a little bit about the crossover into wellness spaces. In terms of our work, we might touch upon more anti-Semitism because you can't avoid it. But one thing I noticed is we both kind of latched on to the rise of Russell Brand in recent months. So what made you want to focus on him at the banter and identify him as a problem? So we spend a lot of time looking at figures in the alt-right and alt-left. We sort of pegged this quite early on particularly when it came to the alt-right, that there was this quite powerful political movement happening that seemed to be have its own set of facts, um, its own separate reality, and some wildly popular kind of charismatic figures, particularly on the alt-right. It seemed to metastasize, and you, you saw something similar happening to the left, and you had this kind of horseshoe effect where a kind of mirror image of the, of the alt-right appeared on the left. I don't think it's anywhere near as dangerous or, or as well-funded or as big as the alt-right. Because what you're t- when we talk about the alt-right, what you're talking about is the MAGA party. You're talking about the GOP, which is now essentially an alt-right entity, at, le- at least from, from my perspective. There is this, I would say, cottage industry on the left that I saw as being troubling because of the sloppiness of how they presented arguments and their, their quote-unquote journalism, right, which n- never actually turns out to be, you know, they haven't actually done their homework properly. They haven't actually done, they haven't actually reported on whatever subject it is they've done properly. And then I saw, you know, Russell Brand, and I'd followed Brand for quite some time. I kind of thought he was interesting. I did appreciate, you know, I think it was about 10 years ago where he, he was actually, he began The Trues, that YouTube channel, The Trues, that I thought was good. And uh, he had some interesting guests on, and he seemed to be a kind of open-minded, I didn't necessarily agree with him on everything, but I felt that he was his heart was in the right place at least but then it kind of morphed into something else something very strange um and i kept seeing him you know i'm like why is he on jordan talking to jordan peterson why is he like panning around with candace owens talking to ben shapiro all of these grifters on the right and then the defense was you know oh i'm just talking we're just having an open conversation and which i'm i'm for that but i also think that when you platform these people when you platform when you give these people oxygen you're validating her you're saying that she's a legitimate person who we need to speak to it, which is the same thing with donald trump right that you have to you know it's this whole idea of both sides being equal right both sides are the same well the republicans and the democrats are just as bad so why don't we have a debate between a uh, a Democrat and and a Candace Owens. I mean, I don't really see the point in arguing with a climate change denying anti-vax 5G conspiracy theorist. And I think when you legitimize them, it shifts the debate in a very dangerous way where you now have to spend a lot of your time debunking nonsense. But then I saw Russell Brand sort of engaging more and more with alt-right figures. And then I'm sure he probably figured out, hey, there's audience capture here and his YouTube channel exploded. I mean, he's, I was watching a clip of Russell Brand from a couple of years ago and it was, he had like 4 million subscribers and now he's got like 6 million subscribers. I mean, that, that's crazy. That's, that's an insane number of people that he can reach. Uh, these are all 
right-wing conspiracy theories that he's talking about. He may not necessarily agree with everything the right-wing is saying, but he's using those topics. Whenever I see him, his media appearances, he's just it's just so lazy. Like, his arguments are so lazy. And it's usually, anytime you say, hey, Russell, like, why are you hanging out with these crazy people on Fox News and uh, Tucker Carlson? And he's like, well, MSNBC is just as bad. And it's just not true. I don't like MSNBC very much. I don't like seeing, I don't watch them. But they're not in any way remotely comparable to Fox News, right? I just think that anybody who believes that is not paying attention, right? Or, or not doing any serious journalism or serious work. And, and Russell Brown likes to think of himself as a journalist, which is insane. And and you'll always hear the globalists come up in pretty much every discourse that he has at this point. Yeah, and I don't think that Russell Brown is an anti-Semite. I, I really don't. I don't, I don't. I don't think he's an anti-Semite at all. I just think he's kind of greedy. And I think he's a narcissist. And I think he likes hearing the sound of his own voice. He's clearly got savvy social media people working for him and they know how to amp the channel up. And they say, hey, use this, use these terms, say globalist, you'll get a lot more views. And he does, predictably. But it's also a good example of how that unconscious anti-Semitism creeps into the discourse because of audience capture. Yeah, yeah, ex- ex- exactly. That's exactly how these ideas are, are kind of impregnated. Like a, you plant a seed and all of a sudden... You listen to Russell Brand talking about Davos and World Economic Forum and global banks and globalists, right? A lot of his captions on YouTube are about globalists. The algorithm will lead you and feed you into right-wing content and that right-wing content where they'll just say it outright is the Jews. So it doesn't take that long for your brain to get warped on this stuff. Given that you've worked in this world, the broader world of wellness and martial arts and psychedelics. Are there any other figures you've covered that have come to your attention that have been really problematic? One other person I think I'd like to do more stuff on actually as well is, is Aubrey Marcus. There's trouble brewing there. I followed him for a while and I actually enjoyed some of his content about psychedelics. I thought, you know, he's an interesting guy and he seems very open-minded. But then I saw, I, I had this weird experience in, in uh, I'm sure like many other people did, at the beginning of the pandemic, having done ayahuasca and having been involved in some of these new agey or more spiritually, you know, like listening to podcasts or like I, I've got friends in that space. And I thought, you know what? Okay, here's, I wonder what they're going to say about this. I wonder whether they're going to have like, because they've done this plant medicine. I almost felt like sort of prepared for the coronavirus pandemic because the feelings it brought up were actually quite similar to the feelings I experienced during an ayahuasca ceremony. I don't know what to make of that, but this destabilizing experience that we're all having, I'm familiar with this and I'm familiar with like how you might try to navigate that. And I thought, oh, okay, I, I hope these other leaders, these other thought leaders who are experienced with this stuff are going to be helpful as we go through this very, very, very difficult, you know, an ecolo- it was, it's essentially an ecological crisis, right? We have a pandemic, I think it's clearly to do, do with human activity on the planet. So how are we going to handle this? And I just watched one by one, every person that I'd followed just lose the plot and go crazy. And Aubrey Marcus was one of them. And he slowly descended into anti-vax stuff. And he was talking about, you know, they got he got obsessed with, um, what is it about save the children? There was the whole QAnon adjacent thing about saving children. So I pegged him as a, as a dangerous influencer. Uh, you know, he's in the Joe Rogan sphere of influence. Joe Rogan, obviously another major source of disinformation. I saw those, that whole sort of network of podcasts and wellness influencers in the, in the psychedelic space as being pretty 
dangerous and veering into politics. And you hear like, you know, Aubrey Mark is talking about politics and you just think, you have no idea what you're talking about. It's just like, if you're going to speak on a subject, it's like them talking about vaccines. Anybody who's like studied vaccines will tell you quickly that they're talking complete nonsense. So when you hear the, a lot of these influencers with huge YouTube channels jumping in on, on the topic that you actually know quite well, there's a lot of alarm bells start ringing. You're like, wait a second, you can't say this. You, this is nonsense. And, and try to push back against it. But, but it's, again, it's like bailing out the t- Titanic with the reach that I have, for example, and the reach that somebody like Aubrey Marcus or Joe Rogan or Russell Brand has. 